But as I always say to my team here, you know, when you start in a leadership job, you're appointed. But over time, to be successful, you need to be elected. Your team, your clients, your shareholders, your investors, whoever those constituents are, they need to elect you to that job over time. Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate in our first episode of 2022. Today's guest, someone I've wanted on the show now actually since we started back in 2017, is Owen Thomas, OT to his friends, the CEO of the nation's largest office REIT, Boston Properties. Owen truly exemplifies leadership in our industry in at least three distinct parts of his career, first in climbing the ladder and then leading Morgan Stanley's real estate business, a second career after his, air quotes, retirement from Morgan Stanley, but now in his ninth year as CEO of Boston Properties, and third, which we do not get to dedicate enough time to as a corporate citizen in the real estate world as the immediate past global chair of ULI, and who recently made a $1 million commitment to the ULI Foundation to help fund its net zero imperative initiative around carbon reduction strategies for our industry. Quiet, thoughtful leadership lessons with no self-aggrandizing comes up throughout the interview. I love this conversation. And we'll also, of course, talk about Owen and Boston properties since, I think the conversation was pre-Omicron, about short and midterm predictions for where we settle into a normalized back-to-the-office world. This conversation with Owen kicks off our fifth year of Leading Voices. Our first episodes were in January of 2017. This podcast host thing is something I never expected to be doing for so long. I thought it would be a fun year-long project versus something that would so influence and define my work life, and my wife Diane would argue, and it's true, my life life. I'm excited about this year where we'll keep exploring different perspectives, different success stories, and different ways that leaders in our business are impacting the built environment. This month's programming is an example of the fun and schizo nature of Leading Voices, where today's episode is with Owen, truly one of the legends in our business, and in two weeks we release my conversation with Laura Foote, well under 40 years old, who's a leader in the YIMBY, the Yes in My Backyard movement. I cannot imagine two, both leaders in their own right, people in our business who play in such hugely different spheres, but that's the real estate business and part of the fun of hosting leading voices which is actually the satisfaction that I also get from our work at Terra Search Partners at Search Professionals in Real Estate. You'd think search is all about Uber roles in traditional asset classes, but in our work, like on the podcast, we get to have deep dives across similarly vast, diverse parts of the industry. Last editorial comment, welcome to 2022. It gotta be better than 2021. This was a best of times and worst of times year, but a hard one. Crazy heights in the real estate markets, continued COVID now with Omicron, continued political disconsent, more fires, and personally, I lost both of my parents and also turned 65. That's a lot of personal passages for me, which brings a maturing perspective and point of view, which I'm sure comes across on the show. I do thank you, our listeners, and my team at Terra Search Partners once again for giving me this platform to explore and keep learning myself. That said, Please keep on listening to the show. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app. And as always, please share your favorite episode with friends and colleagues. This conversation with Owen might just be one of those. 
If you have comments or questions, please feel free to email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Enjoy the episode. Owen Thomas, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. We've been talking about this for a couple of years, and I'm thrilled to have you as our first guest of 2022, even though it's 2021 right now. So we're entering that year. You're our first guest in a while talking about the office business, which is the foggiest business for me. When I think about the future and where things are going and what work means and what offices mean and the ego of office and all the rest, which we're going to talk about today, but I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. We'll start with office. We'll talk about you and your background, and then we'll talk about some general topics relating to real estate. So thank you for being on the show. Great, Matt. Well, terrific to be with you, and thanks for having me. Thrilled to do it. Um, let's start with your elevator speech summary of the business and footprint of Boston Properties, just to orient our listeners to you and what you're doing right now. Yeah. So Boston Properties is the largest company in the U.S. that is uh, focused on office assets. And we're an S&P 500 company, trade under a BXP ticker. Even though we're large, we have you know 52 million square feet that we own. Uh, and manage. And then we are always building five or six million square feet at any one time, which we are now. Uh, Even though we're large, we're focused on specific areas of the country, most notably uh, coastal gateway markets. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about why that is. But those include, of course, Boston, New York, where I am right now, uh, Washington, D.C., San Francisco. uh, And then we went entered L.A., three or four years ago, and we entered Seattle three or four months ago. And so we're now in those cities as well. We're among the biggest landlords in the cities that we're in, except for uh, LA and Seattle, where we just got started. Good. And I think we are the biggest landlord in Boston and in San Francisco. Uh-huh. I think importantly, when you think about us is, is yes, we own all these assets and many of them are very well known in their cities. You know, these are all, they're not all trophies, but we own, you know, things like the Salesforce Tower, the General Motors building in New York, the Prudential Complex, the 200 Clarendon Street in Boston, mm-hmm. Reston Town Center. So we have, you know, very high quality assets that are, are, are well known. But I also think importantly, the company's DNA is a developer. You know, most of the external growth that we generate is through development. And uh, many of the staff that we have are development. We have a lot more development and construction people than we have Mm -hmm. acquisition deal people, a lot Mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you think about the company's growth, you know, we really haven't done an M&A deal. We're big and it's been built basically one building at a time, either through development or through acquisition. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a unique feature. And then it's fully integrated. So Every region has a leasing team, a development team, a construction team, property management team, legal team. So we do all of the, you know, we're vertically integrated company does all this work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you have class B assets? Is it all class A and do you have life science as well as traditional office? Uh, We do. Life science is about 6% of the company and we have a very significant development and redevelopment portfolio in life science that we control. And I've been saying to the market that I think we can double that 6% allocation to life science over the next five years. Mm -hmm. And then look, I, I, I don't think if we have anything that's really class B, we probably sold it. We sell uh, three to five hundred million dollars of assets every year, and you know not everything we own is obviously like the Salesforce Tower, so they're you know varying, I guess, 
grades of class A, you might say, but but anything that we would call commodity, mm-hmm. we, we, we don't want to own it. And, and by the way, that's an important point, particularly as we talk about office assets is, you know, how do you define a unique and premier building versus a commodity building? And right. the way I do that is if I feel that the way we're leasing space in a building is because we're leading with price, then we have a commodity asset. In other words, if we're trying to attract a tenant or a client to a building and we're saying, hey, it's the cheapest alternative, or it's then I don't think we have the right asset. But if the pitch is leading with, we have the best amenities, we're right next to the subway, we have this you know, uh, window line, you know, et cetera, and we're leading with those things. Look, price is always important, believe me. Right. But it, as long as we're leading with these other factors, then I feel like we've got something that's more distinctive and more high quality. Of course, it's funny. We, we do the same in our business. So if, if we lead with price, we're screwed. It just, it just doesn't yeah. work. Right. But I'll tell you a funny exactly. story. When I started in search, I talked to a friend. My first office was in search was in Embarcadero Center 3. And they talked to a friend a couple years later when I was planning the next step of my search career. And I said, what's the secret? What do you do? And this woman named Lynn Sedway, who you might know. And mm-hmm. Lynn said, got to be an Embarcadero Center. That's the way to yeah. establish credibility. And that, that, that metric may have changed over time, and it may change coming out of COVID, but it's still the case. And that's, that's your value proposition in premier office space. Yeah. Well, that's a, you know, the Market Air Center is a great example. I mean, we're having a lot of success uh, leasing it even during the pandemic, mm-hmm. because again, the, what we lead with are the views, you know, uh, if you're in a high floor and in those buildings, you have wonderful views of the Bay, and the Golden Gate Bridge and the floor plate really works for a lot of different types and sizes of tenants. And mm-hmm. those are, you know, driving a lot of the, the decisions. Um, you know, price again is always a part of the conversation, but that's what, what is the, and, and of course the location of where it is right. proximity to the ferry and subway system and that kind of thing. Yep. Well, we'll come back to, to that in a few minutes. Now, now one comment, a quote from your website, it says a foundation built on people over places. And our last guest was David Stanford from real foundations. And we talked about the equalization between assets themselves, which you've talked about so far, and the yeah. business platform, which is a, kind of a separate but co-equal, hopefully co-equal thing. But you lead with that on your website. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, you know, when you talk about a company, and as I just did, I did talk a lot about where we are and right. what we own. Uh, but I also talked about what we do, uh, mm-hmm. which is building and managing and being vertically integrated. And you know, real estate is not static. You know, it is a capital intensive industry. Mm-hmm. If you look at our, you know, margins, cost of capital is a p- big piece of it, you know, m- more than, you know, compensation expense. Um, so, you know, you're going to end up talking about assets, but real estate is not static and it needs to be nurtured. So as I described earlier, first of all, we build buildings and that's not easy to do. And uh, particularly in the cities that we're in, so there's tremendous expertise that's required by your team and getting, identifying the right sites or the right projects. You know, if they're owned by somebody, g- generating the right partnerships, getting properties entitled, working with architects, designing great properties, and then working with general co- contractors and getting them built. I mean, mm-hmm. the, some of the construction statistics around the Salesforce Tower are just, you know, stunning in terms of the amount of concrete and the foundation system and all these things. So that requires great people. Mm -hmm. And then even buildings that once they're built, you say, well, what is there left to do? There's always something to do. Mm -hmm. You know, they need to be leased. Uh, Tenants, you know, 
don't stay in the buildings forever or their leases come due and they re- need to be renewed. Buildings need to be refreshed. You know, for example, right now at the General Motors building, uh, we took back the second floor, which was uh, part of a retail space, and we're making it into an amenity center. So mm-hmm. there's going to be a conference center and a gym. And, you know, that's a big uh, redevelopment project going on in an iconic asset, you know, in New York City, because that's what we think is required today to maintain that building's uniqueness, um, right. you know, relative to other offerings. So, mm-hmm. and then, you know, we're always talking about, well, you know, buildings wear out, you know, the, the, the mechanical systems. when do you replace them? You know, what kind of amenitization is required? We just opened here in, uh, I'm at, in our 53rd and Lex campus at 599 Lex. And we just opened a uh, culinary collective called the Hue, uh, which is in the atrium space at uh, 601 Lex, which is the wedge building in New mm-hmm. York used to be owned and occupied by Citibank. It's fantastic, you know, and it's creating all kinds of excitement, not only for us, but for our clients in these buildings and clients in the area. And uh, again, that took years, you know, of, and a lot of skill to pull all that together. So, mm-hmm. so that's what, you know, that's where the people side comes in. And, you know, the amount of things that uh, our people do each year in terms of leasing our buildings and, you know, nurturing the assets is, is extraordinary. Yeah. And, and people and service really matters, too. Uh, yes. Having been in Barcadero Center, I remember the doormen. They were, you know, wonderful folks. Yeah. I remember my wife was in uh, Spear Street Tower, then owned by EOP. And there was a doorman. I used to pick her up at the end of the day and we'd meet downstairs and the doorman would say, hey, Matt, Diane isn't down yet. And yes, it just right. he said it every day. I don't know how he knew that. And because there were a thousand people coming back and forth, but that kind of training just astonished me. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, again, I think that's an important point you're raising, Matt, about the importance, too, of property management. It's not just about the building systems. It's about the relationships with the clients and, you know, uh, dealing with day to day issues, Mm -hmm. uh, but also dealing with bigger issues. I'll give you a great example is the pandemic. You know, we've had a lot of engagement with our clients about health security, and what they should be thinking about. I mean, we're you know, most of our, most of our clients are real estate companies and, you know, they need our help to try to figure out what they should be doing with um, their built assets in terms of health security. So, you know, and I, we can talk about that, but the one that's certainly going to continue post COVID is all about um, air exchange and refreshment ventilation. You know, that's a really important topic. It's invisible and, You know, we've had a lot of education, you know, with our clients about that and the importance of it and what mm-hmm. metrics they should be looking at. Right. You have to lead the clients to figure this stuff out. Let's get into yeah. that because I do want to talk about what COVID means, what occupancy means. I was in downtown San Francisco a month ago. I had breakfast with a friend from Shorenstein, and he said San Francisco is the deadest of the cities. He said New York feels yeah. almost normal. He said Texas feels more than normal. Um, talk about your occupancies on a day-to-day basis in your different markets and how that's feeling and how that's trending. Yeah. So let me let me get some um, vocabulary, make okay. sure we're all talking the same thing. So when I think about occupancy, I think about what we report to shareholders. And right now that's at 80, that's 89%, which is our leased space. Yep. Uh, excuse me, it's our leased and occupied space. We actually have signed leases with customers that haven't taken occupancy yet. That will bring that. We'll bring that up a little bit. But uh-huh. so what you're uh, asking about is what we call census, which is how many people are actually in the buildings versus mm-hmm. what were what were in there before COVID. 
you know, and by the way, this data is getting less relevant over time because we base it all off of who was in the buildings in February of 2020. And, you know, now that's starting to change because tenants are changing and things like that. But to answer your question, New York is by far the highest. And, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago, we were pushing 60 percent, you know, census. And then San Francisco is definitely the lowest. And that was in the low 20s. Wow. And then Boston and Washington are in between, you know, in the in the 30s. And by the way, these are only buildings, you know, that have where we monitor this. Not all our buildings, you know, have turnstiles and things like that. So so and it's going up steadily. You know, we had the um, I mean, there was a view and mine, mine included that we were going to have a step change at Labor Day. And it did improve a little bit, but the Delta variant, you know, pushed it all out. But what we have seen, you know, since September, almost every week, you know, a, a gradual improvement. And what we also have seen is that uh, many of our clients are, um, you know, they're returning to the office. I would say the banks mm-hmm. and the financial service companies did it the soonest. Well, actually, the property companies did it first. We, we did it in July 4th. Right. We have to prove the point. Yeah. And but, you know, honestly, I think Blackstone was even before we were. So they they're back. And a lot of the you know private equity uh, asset management companies, banks are clearly, you know, mm-hmm. I think more or less back in the office. Then this fall, we've started to see the law firms do it. So different law firms. We have a lot of law firm clients. They're st- slowly coming back, but they're having, you know, reopening events mm-hmm. and are having people come back more. And then a lot of the tech companies are behind uh, these other industries and they've all, most of them have announced uh, January uh, or first quarter, you know, return. Mm-hmm. Now we don't know net yet what this Omicron variant will do to these dates. Uh, I don't, I, because I, we don't know what the impact is yet, you know, what, to um, the infection rate in the U.S. and what, what impact that will have. Yeah, I bet it pushes it back, but you just don't know, right? Because each time maybe you're more used to the next threat, so therefore you go back to a normalization around the threat sitting with you. Yeah. Talk about it's not going to be five days a week. So let's talk about what you think the work week might look like and what your tenants are saying and what you're hearing from the marketplace about that. And that will put different stresses and burdens on your space and therefore the planning for the space. Yeah, yeah. So let me let me kind of back up a little bit too and talk a little bit what, about what I think is really going on with return to office. So there's definitely look the pandemic created the issue and clearly the Delta variant delayed the issue because it was a real it was a real health issue. You know people were getting sick and you know we at least at the initial we didn't have the vaccine or medications and it was definitely a serious health risk. But today that is not the case. You know, I don't want to say there's no health risk. There is. But if you look at what people are doing in the country, Mm -hmm. look at the football games, the basketball games. Uh, It's very difficult to get a restaurant reservation in our, including in San Francisco, by the way, right. Shopping retail, it's, it's come back a lot. So Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, again, I'm not suggesting the pandemic is not of a health issue because it is, but people are out there interacting with one another, mm-hmm. in many cases unmasked. So I think the return to office is as much about the labor shortage and the labor environment that we have in the country as it is about 
the pandemic right now. Now, Omicron could change that. You know, if the infection rate goes up, mm-hmm. I would tell you that, yes, it's about the pandemic. But right now, I would tell you it's as much about labor, uh, the labor market as it is about health security. I have not spoken with a business leader who likes remote work. Mm-hmm. They are worried about the decay of the culture of their companies. They don't think they're as innovative or as effective uh, when their people are not collaborating. They have a horrible time of recruiting and retaining talent and getting people, uh, young people, getting mentored and learning what they should be learning. And they want people to come back to the office. But many of these leaders are also worried that if they are um, overly prescriptive about returning to the office, that they'll lose talent and mm-hmm. that some of those employees will go to other firms. So I think that's a driving a lot of the slow return to the office as the pandemic is. Yeah. But now coming to your to your point about hybrid work, I definitely think that you know the pandemic will is going to have a long term impact on office use, and I do think, as you're suggesting, Matt, that the, the hybrid work is going to be a more uh, typical model. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all learned how to use these tools better, and it's more a you know it's a little bit more part of how we operate. And a lot of clients that have returned to the office, you know, many of them have said to their employees, um, you know, come back three days a week, come back four days a week. And we're seeing that. So then you might say, well, okay, let's take an example, three days a week. Well, okay, so that's three out of five days. That's only 60 percent, you know, use is the demand for office, therefore going to drop 40 percent. And I think that's very unlikely for the following reasons. So first of all, if you're going to get that kind of efficiency, you need to do two things. You need to schedule when people are out of the office because you're going to have to, if you're going to reduce your footprint 40%, you're going to have to spread all those people equally, including Monday and Friday, by the way, in the office. That's not what employees want when they want a remote work benefit. They want to pick when they're out of the office. And by the way, they're going to pick Friday first and Monday second. So that's what they want. And, and the then, company doesn't um, want that because then you don't get the culture if everyone you don't get the culture. comes at and, random and, days. Yeah. And so then the other, and that's to, to, to your point, the other thing that we're seeing is um, a lot of clients are saying, yes, we, you can, you only have to come in three days a week, but we want everybody here on like Tuesday and Wednesday, because we want that collaboration benefit. We don't want people coming in you know, commuting, uh, making the effort to be in the office and then not being able to collaborate because somebody's not in the office. So that's what we're seeing so far is is companies going hybrid are all, you know, are saying everybody's got to be in there on a certain day. Then the other thing, by the way, you have to do if you're going to try to save space on hybrid work is you have to go to floating workstations. Mm -hmm. That's unpopular. Again, if you're trying to satisfy employee preference through hybrid work, they don't, Employees also don't want, um, uh, they want their own workspace. You know, Gensler did a survey on this and actually two thirds, now this was a little bit, you know, as a year plus ago, maybe things have changed. But from memory, I think that survey said that 90% of employees preferred their own workstation, which isn't surprising. What's more surprising is two thirds of them said they would prefer that over hybrid work. So uh, having your own desk or office, whatever the case may be, when you come in is, is um, important to people. Right. All of this makes total sense to me. And the post-COVID world will be different than the pre-COVID world. There yes. will be more flexibility. We'll come in a few minutes and talk about um, 
uh, we work and industrious and kind of shared yeah. workspaces because that's another solution which I personally love in my kind of business. But talk about what might be trendy and what's going to be permanent when people make their bets on what their space looks like and feels like. Yeah. Well, so, Matt, some of the things that you're describing were already going on before COVID. Right. So, you know, like law firms, they were, you know, when they renewed their leases, they were shrinking because they were going to smaller offices and they didn't need those law libraries anymore because it was all, you know, uh, right. all on the cloud and electronic. And, you know, they had changed the way they less assistance or, you know, um, more people per assistant, things like that was were already going on. But I would say the biggest trend that we have seen so far from COVID is the uh, focus on quality. Mm-hmm. So going back to my point earlier, if you're a business leader and you don't like remote work, but you're nervous or concerned about being too prescriptive about in-person work, what you want is a great workplace. Mm-hmm. You want your employees when they come in to say, this is fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. my space is great. There's amenities in the area. It's easy to get to. So, you know, single stop transit. So, for example, the tour activity and leasing activity as a percentage of total in the in Midtown, mm-hmm. New York, has gone up a lot uh, post-COVID. It's got a much bigger market share of the mm-hmm. leasing than it mm-hmm. did pre-COVID because, again, it's single stop transit. And we've also now going to have a Long Island Railroad uh, train come into Grand Central. It's going to open. So that's going to be helpful. So that's what we're seeing. So companies are saying, well, you know, if I'm going to renew, I need, you know, and I want to get my employees back to the office, I want to be in a great building because I want my employees to come back. And if I have great space, they're more likely to do it. Now, as you know, we're a landlord. So we provide the location and the Mm -hmm. geometry and the window line, but each client builds out their space the way they want to. I mean, there's some exceptions to that. And we're going to get into that, like co-working and our spec suite business and things like that. But most of the customers or clients that we have, they build out the space they want the way they want to build it out. Mm -hmm. And I know the architects are very busy working with clients, trying to think through what the future of the office is. And I think there will be change, but I will tell you so far, we haven't seen much (laughs) and we've been building big office buildings for people like Verizon and, Fannie Mae and others, and we haven't seen them make big changes from the plans that they had pre-pandemic to what they're doing now. Now, those plans were already had a lot of collaboration space and outdoor space, and you know they, they were they were already built out that way to start with. Right. Um, so that maybe they, you know, I would say they were on the right track. I think already before the pandemic, but we just haven't seen our clients broadly come in and say, all right, we're going to spend millions of dollars and completely retool, you know, how our space looks. Uh-huh. It's interesting because the headlines would say that these, these long tables of workstations is over, at least was over when the pandemic was hot. I'm thinking people still want to be near each other so that that might be a pandemic trend, not a permanent trend, not that packing them in makes any sense. I think we got to the minimum size. Yeah. But is, yeah, I think there'll be, I think being packed in too tight, I do think there's going to be some reluctance on that going forward. And I do, you know, one of the trends that was negative for office real estate pre-pandemic was, quote, densification. You right. know, these were the, a lot of the questions that we would get pre-pandemic and, you know, nobody's asking about that anymore. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, generally people that are thinking about demand for office would say the de-densification will be a plus, you know, for the business. 
uh, because it'll create, you know, more, more demand for the, the seats that are required by each client. So I, I don't think benches are going to go away, but I'm not sure people are going to be as close together as they, they used to be. I bet that's true. And yeah. when you're making a big bet on, say, a lobby and a design that makes people feel good, maybe that is just what it was before the pandemic, but maybe that will have changed, too. Any sense of that because you're making those bets and spending those dollars yeah. right now? Yeah, I, you know, I think that varies by market. I'll give you an example. Like New York still has the kind of what I, I'd call the uh, minimalist, beautiful, but minimalist lobby. Right. Maybe a, a grand space. You know, we have a Stella, for example, here at, at 599, but it's not an activated lobby. There's a security desk, there's security guards are there and so forth. But but then in San Francisco, it's different. You know, we just redid our lobbies at Embarcadero Center and we activated them. You know, we put uh, couches and artwork in the lobby and invite, you know, people that are using the buildings to, um, you know, mingle and be with each other in the in the lobby. So it's a it's a little bit of a regional and local preference uh, on that. But I, I still think, you know, a couple of things I would say. One is, I you know, again, going back to quality, the entry experience is important. You know, you want your employees when they come into the office to feel good about it and feel like it's a, a special place and a place mm-hmm. that they're proud uh, to come to work. And then you know, depending on the the client base, you know, having, a, you know, if you have the right, it's hard to do it in a major, you know, 2 million square foot tower. But if you can have a dedicated lobby, you know, for a client, you know, I think that's always preferred. We just bought a building in New York, uh, 360 Park Avenue South, that we're completely uh, redeveloping. And mm-hmm. one of our plans, we can make two different lobbies. So if we get find a large client that wants to take, you know, half or more of the building, we could actually give them their own dedicated lobby. So and I think that matters. Again, going back to, you know, why do you want to have great space? You want to create your brand and you want to create culture and connectivity with your employees. And if you're coming into a building and it's a, the lobby is dedicated to expressing your brand and you know that you're Huge. at your company when you go in there, I think that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. So let, let's talk about your markets for a minute and let's talk about the markets you're not in that are growing and what were the quote unquote gateway markets from eight years ago. The world has changed and some of those other markets have both grown more and may have been coming more quickly out of COVID. So any yeah. comments on the markets you're not in that you might want to be in and but also just generally from the office world, how have they fared in all of this? Yeah. So a um, couple of things I'd say. First of all, we focus on clusters of knowledge workers and we've had outside experts talk to us about this and we're students of it. And we focus on things like computer science, biology, chemistry, things like that. The six cities that we're in, they're the top, they're four or five of the top five in all those categories in terms of the numbers of the clusters of these knowledge workers. Mm-hmm. And that's why we are where we are, because we think these um, cities are durable over time and they will grow. And then the second thing that's really important for us is we're not a merchant builder. We're not a fund. We're not a short term player. We're a long term player. We're very long-term player because we go into a market and we set, you know, we're not going to go in and buy a building, hire an outsider to manage it for us. And then once we, you know, if the business plan is achieved and our profits are made, we sell it and then we leave town. This is not the way we operate. 
you know, if we're going to a city, we're setting up all those different groups that I talked about, leasing, property management, development, Mm -hmm. construction. So we need to choose wisely at the outset because we're building up these local uh, franchises. So we're not going to just go in and out of places uh, quickly. And then second, we need, since we are not selling uh, a lot of our real estate, it's very important that obviously we buy things well, we build great assets, but also they're in places that are going to have rents that grow over time. Mm -hmm. And to get rental growth, you need two things. You need the demand growth. So that goes back to my knowledge cluster point. The second is you need some barriers to supply. Right. And the cities that we're in, they're expensive, they're complicated. They have, in many cases, challenging entitlement processes. In San Francisco, there are laws uh, that limit the amount of development. So we think there are barriers to new development, which helps, you know, rents grow over time. There's always going to be cyclicality. But what you want is because you're going to have recessions, you're going to have pandemics, you're going to have things that go on. Mm-hmm. But you want, you know, the highs each cycle and the lows each cycle to be going up. And we think they will in the cities where we operate. There are many parts of the country, um, particularly in the southeast and the southwest, that are growing faster mm-hmm. than the, the gateway markets where we are. And, you know, they're great cities and, you know, have a lot of the characteristics I described. But, you know, we they're first of all, they're smaller. You know, if you think about the scale of our our business, Mm -hmm. you know, and the amount of square footage that we own, that would be pretty high percentage, you know, Mm -hmm. in some of those cities. And I don't think they have the same, you know, barriers to entry that 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 exists. I think the levels of construction that are going on in many of those cities are much higher as a percentage Mm -hmm. of total than what goes on in our our cities. And, you know, and things change. You know, there was a lot of articles that just came out um, over the weekend about uh, the lack of affordability in Austin, Texas. You right. know, this was the the uh, darling of the real estate world for the last couple of years, all these um, announcements about companies moving there. And now all of a sudden, the, the <laughs> there's some data out showing that the city's actually not that affordable anymore. Right. So, you know, things do change. It may uh, not be time. the place that people wanted to go to to escape the big city, especially yeah. Austin, because the character changes so quickly. Although it was yeah. interesting, there's another article in the Times last week talked about why kind of top six cities or something to live in, and there were 10 variables, and Texas hit all of them, uh, particularly Dallas. And so, you know, you, you see both things. Talk, talk about my city of San Francisco, and because it is so far behind. And there are some challenges in the city. You have two of the trophy buildings assets in the city in particular. But but talk about how you see that coming back and what the barriers are for it to, to mend itself, if that's the right word. Feels yeah, like no, it's, a, it's mad. I said this on our last earnings call. San Francisco has been more impacted by the pandemic than any of the cities where we operate. I mean, right. before the pandemic, it was fantastic. I mean, the uh, rents were growing more than, you know, somewhere between five and 7% a year and capital values have probably doubled, you know, in the last seven or eight years, it was on a a serious roll. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic has, you know, been very challenging for San Francisco. And I think, I think a couple reasons for that. One is it's very technology oriented and the tech companies, as I said earlier, have been the most or I'd say the least aggressive about returning to the office. So you just, that's one of the reasons why the census is low. The other reason is that the city just decided to keep a lot of the restrictions about coming to the office and the occupancy limits. And there's still a mask requirement, even though the vaccination rate is way above the national average. And I think the infection rate last time I checked was way below the national average. There's still a mask mandate. 
And, you know, I get that. It's hard to ask employees to come back to the office and then they run around, you know, the whole day wearing a mask or sitting together in a cube with mask on. It just that's not a pleasant, you know, office experience. So when you have laws like that, you know, that's not helping, you know, bringing people back to the office. So I think those two things are, are big drivers. But over the long term, I'm confident San Francisco is going to return. I mean, uh, and, and it's not just because it's San Francisco. It, it's the leading computer science knowledge cluster, certainly in the U.S. and probably the world. Mm-hmm. And I think fundamentally that is um, when I think about industries in the future that are going to outperform, it's going to be technology. And there's going to San Francisco is a very important hub. I mean, yes, some technology moved to Austin. Absolutely. Seattle, a lot of these other cities, no question about it. But it, mm-hmm. there's still a tremendous amount of it that's based there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be the core of what ultimately lifts San Francisco you know, out of this um, current malaise that it's in. The other thing I would point out, areas around San Francisco are doing pretty well. I was going to say uh, that, the yeah. Sil- Silicon Valley has got, you know, some of the big tech companies have taken multi-hundred thousand square foot uh, new requirements. Mm-hmm. You know, Google's entitling this major uh, project around Deerdon Station in San Jose. Oakland is doing pretty well, you know, in terms of office leasing and activity. Communities, you know, in the Bay Area, not necessarily the CBD of San Francisco that are performing, you know, reasonably well, you know, through through this pandemic. I think it's absolutely right. And that does suggest the region is strong. And it's interesting, though, when you vacate a downtown that was largely office, then both kind of homelessness can take over and retail can run away. And getting all of those under control as people come back to town, it's a vicious cycle until it becomes a virtuous cycle. Yeah. So co-working is going to be a, a part of the office business going forward. I think that it's probably not on the same trajectory that it was pre-COVID, um, but it is, it, w- it is and will be an important part of business. Today, I think around 3% of the office space in the country, plus or minus, is co-working, so it's not huge. Mm-hmm. But there are going to be players like WeWork and others that are emerging from the pandemic and they've kind of restructured and refashioned themselves and they're you know ready to continue to grow the business. I think it's effective in a couple of different areas. And I think one thing that the co-working industry did is it made landlords like ourselves more customer friendly. And what do I mean by that? If you're a, a typical client and you want space, you know, it's it's not easy to procure you know, you generally work with a leasing broker, then, you know, you work with a landlord to find something, then you have to build out the space, you know, hire an architect. You've got a lot of capital costs, you know, in building out the space. You got a big long lease, you know, you got to hire a lawyer to do a lease. Right. It's just, you know, now if you're a big company and you need quiet enjoyment of a space for a long period of time, it's absolutely worth doing all that stuff. But sometimes if you're a small company, I mean, you don't even know whether you're going to be in business in a year or whether you're going to double in size or what's going to happen. You know, particularly if you're a startup, you don't want to go through all that. You just want space Mm -hmm. and you probably want to pay for it by the seat as opposed to the square foot. Because that, again, put yourself as the vendor into your client's shoes. You know, what are they really thinking about? They need office for people. They don't need square footage. Right. So I think the co-working industry Uh, created a product that's just easier to procure. You come in, the space is available, you pay for it by the seat. You don't, Mm -hmm. 
you know, you don't have to do a lease. It's just a short term, you know, a short agreement. You don't need a broker. Uh, you don't need an architect. It's all, you know, you don't need to do any of those things that I said earlier. You just take the space. Right. So I think there's a market for that. And, you know, we not only do we have WeWork and other uh, co-working companies that lease space from us that operate those kinds of facilities, but we've done it ourselves. We have a product called Flex by BXP and we have half a dozen or so facilities. Uh, it's very Boston concentrated. Mm -hmm. And that's the customer base that we've been tapping into primarily. And I mean, it's been, uh, pandemics had an impact on that because, you know, if you can give up your space and you're working virtually, you're going to do that. Right. So the occupants, the census in the co-working spaces is lower, I think, than overall because of that flexibility. Mm -hmm. The second customer that I do think co-working will continue to serve, and I know this from my work at Morgan Stanley, you know, big companies, they have changing space needs and they always will want, you know, a headquarters facility or if they know they're committed to a certain region, they're going to want a lot of space in that region for the long term. But on the margin, things change. You know, mm -hmm. new businesses get started. They might want to go to a new city and they don't know, you know, how quickly that's going to, you know, what their space needs are. So there's a value in being able to get space quickly and flexibly for big companies. Is that 5% or 2% or 10%? I think it's a, you know, a 10% or less kind of number. But mm -hmm. I, and I think, and I've heard this from heads of real estate at major corporations, many of them will say that's valuable and I'll pay a premium for it. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's another part of the customer base, but the issue going forward for co-working is who's going to finance it mm. because, you know, if you're giving flexibility, you know, then a lot of costs are now resting on either the co-working company, if this is their strategy to lease space or on the landlords. And so then, then the question is going to be, Again, we're back to our, you know, more traditional role, which is capital allocator. You know, how much capital are we going to allocate to that business? And right now, I would tell you none, because we're we just need to refill what we have uh, before we would consider building out any more co-working space. So now you're having lease terms, which are hey, yeah, we'll yeah. we'll renew you for a period of time, but then also that kind of flexibility, not just co-working itself, but yeah, we'll let you in for a year, and it's already furnished or yeah. you know whatever. Maybe that happens yeah. mostly in sublease space right now versus or co-working versus you guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, I look, I think I'm kind of giving you the only the economic right. equation of how you make these decisions. I think the other thing you can think about when you think about co-working is if we own a big complex like the Prudential Center, you right. know, we've got four office buildings and millions of square feet. I could argue we should have a great co-working center in that project. You know, one, hopefully it finances per what I said earlier, but it's also a way to bring new clients into the Prudential. Because right. if you're a startup and you hadn't been in the Pru before and you go there and all of a sudden you connect with the center and you like using the Eataly and the other amenities that we have. And maybe one day you'll like to go up to the observation deck that we're building. Right. You know, and then you get big and successful, you know, maybe then you'll graduate out of the co-working center and do a lease with us. And so uh, so I think there's a, a, a value in that. And then, you know, the other way to think about the office business is a little bit like apartments. Right. If you're building an apartment complex, you don't have all studios or all three bedrooms. You have a menu of sizes. And I think co-working is part of the menu. So we've got, you know, 
Well said. Buildings, headquarters buildings for very large users. And then we've got full floors for medium sized users. And then, you know, we have a spec suite business where we'll go take space and build out a suite. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we will want to do a, you know, five plus year lease on that. But that's a little bit different because you don't have to deal with the building out the space and all that. And then you've got co working, you know, right. for the very flexible tenants looking for flexibility. So, I do think it could be part of the menu of things you have to offer clients to get your space leased. I think you just described the future. The last question on this is we've been talking about what you do, which is kind of trophy class A stuff, but the vast majority of office space out there, talking for the industry as at large as B and C, not just A, and not just in the gateway cities, any thoughts about what all of this rejuvenation might mean is there more obsolescence because of coming out of the pandemic and what happens to BNC space and secondary markets? Any thoughts yeah. about that? Well, I, I think that's going to get, you know, when, if there is some diminishment in office demand, uh, given my points earlier about the migration to quality, I do think the lower quality buildings that are poorly located are going to struggle more. I do. Uh, I think you'll see, as you always do, particularly in the urban areas where we operate, they'll be repurposed. You know, the land is valuable. There's lots of people, right? Land value is created by density. <clears throat> so uh, there'll be smart people, including us, who will probably figure out ways to repurpose these assets into, you know, other uses. Maybe, I mean, office can be a challenge on residential because of the bay depths. Right. But, you know, I think you'll see some, some repurposing and uh, maybe some demolitions that occur and, you know, re, uh, buildings being rebuilt into something else. So let's totally change the subject. And I want to hear your story about how you got into real estate and kind of the two careers I think that you've had. And yeah. so very quickly, where did you grow up? You went to UVA and then you got in real estate in Harvard. So kind of talk us through this a little bit. So I grew up on a farm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia near a town called Stanton. My friends, whenever I say I'm from Stanton, they're like, no, you're not. You went, you were on a farm, <laughs> you know, near Stanton. And uh, that's in Augusta County, halfway down the state. And my dad, in addition to, you know, overseeing our farm, he was in the real estate business. He did a lot of brokerage for the farming community because he was a farmer. And so he was a trusted person. So he did a lot of that. And then he had an office in Stanton and uh, also had a number of salespeople working for him and they did a lot of residential sales. And then we, we would also um, do some development, you know, uh, lo- low density development, buy a farm, break it up into lots and things like that. So when I was a teenager, I worked in his office and um, I really loved it. And, uh, you know, I got a real estate license in Virginia when I turned 18, which was the minimum age. And so I'd Again, very different from what I'm doing now, but that kind of set the table or yeah, of course. Uh, planted the seed, you know, of an interest in um, uh, in real estate. But anyway, so I went off to Woodbury Forest School in Virginia. It's an all boys boarding school in Orange. Graduated from there and then went to UVA and was in the engineering school, primarily because I uh, was good at math and science and thought that was the right way to go. And then after I finished that, I thought I should you know, if I did all this work to become a mechanical engineer, I ought to be one. Right. Although I always had a lot of interest in real estate and finance and banking and things like that. But I thought, look, if I did this work, I should try this career. So I went to Texas Instruments in uh, Dallas and I worked in their defense department. And I had a couple of different jobs. Um, I worked on the Harpoon Seeker 
assembly line, building tools for that. And then I worked on the team that developed the uh, M1 Abrams tank thermal site, believe it or not. But after, you know, I just knew that wasn't my passion. And um, so I was fortunate and got accepted to Harvard Business School and went after a couple of years. And when I was there, a couple things happened. One, I took Bill Purvu's real estate class. Uh-huh. And I just basically, it kind of reignited my initial uh, love and appreciation uh, for real estate. So then I went to uh, Morgan Stanley out after Harvard, and I was in the real estate group from the outset. And when I started there, we we weren't in the principal business. Uh, right. The real what estate year business was very this? different. Um, what you know, year we was didn't this? have one. Uh, Owen, what year was that? Uh, 1987. Okay. So, you know, we were competing with, you know, East Dill and Goldman Sachs and a lot of brokerage firms, frankly, you know, selling buildings was a lot of what we did. There was some M&A work that the group did, obviously being part of Morgan Stanley. The group used was called Brooks Harvey, actually, uh, mm-hmm. with within a year of, uh, you know, I think the name changed one year before I joined. But then we had a, uh, I learned a lot from this. In 1990, there was a terrible crash in real estate. And, you know, the revenues from our group were very small. And, you know, there was a downsizing and it was a very challenging environment. Not much was going on. But what was what what happened was is it laid the seeds for incredible growth, because Mm -hmm. what happened was that um, Wall Street became a lot more important to the real estate industry as a result of that crisis. Mm -hmm. Because first, the first thing that happened is a lot of companies that were having financial problems, they went public. The upreach structure was created, and there were many great companies. Some, many of them are still in business today, went public during that period of time. Yep. And so the whole REIT industry, it wasn't formed then, but the, certainly the modern REIT industry the modern was REIT formed was formed in 94. Yeah, 93, right. And so Morgan Stanley, you know, being a securities firm, was in the middle of all that. And then debt securitization started, you know, and Morgan Stanley, again, became a big debt securitization shop. And then my bosses uh, very astutely also said, look, this is a great time to invest in real estate. And they went out and raised the first real estate fund at Morgan Stanley, you know, in the early 1990s. So all of a sudden, you know, we went from having very little business to now having all these new engines of growth. And the group grew tremendously. And, uh, you know, I was there through, I think, 2005. And, you know, our, we had billions of dollars of revenue at the end of that. And it was just an exciting thing to be part of because, you know, we were growing. We built a big international uh, business as well, uh, mm-hmm. which was very exciting and fun to be involved in. And, you know, when you have that kind of growth engine, you get a lot more responsibility as a younger person. And, you know, you have all kinds of uh opportunities that you can offer your team, you know, for their uh, professional growth. And it was, and we had a very, uh, we had just a terrific team of people. And, um, you know, we had a great partnership. We worked together well. And I'm very proud, frankly, one of my my biggest things I'm proud of, of of that group is just how well all these individuals have done in the industry. You know, we have a uh, annual get together around the holidays and people come back, come from, frankly, all over the country. And, you know, many of my partners and colleagues at that time, they're all in leadership roles at different companies, you, right. know, you know, around the world, which is very inspiring. Well, you can name the companies, particularly on the principal side, between Westbrook and Rock Point and Bentall Green Oak. Talk about growing into leadership in that world and in that very competitive, hyper-competitive world of exceptional people 
and you wound up running it, so I think. So kind of talk about how that came about and then lessons learned. Well, I ran, you know, I was, I started, you know, as a first year associate, but uh, I was probably like a VP when the uh, 1990 crisis occurred. And then I ran the principal business first. And then later in my career, a couple of people retired or moved on. And then I took over the entire group, both, um, uh, both the principal side and the, and the banking side. But it, you know, it was Morgan Stanley was a meritocracy, you know, so it was, uh, you had to, you know, basically, I think advancement was about, you know, being an expert in your space, working hard, being committed, being a good leader of people, being good with people generally, because, you know, we were always doing a lot of deals and, uh, you know, working with uh, counterparties and clients was, you know, very important all the time. And, and then I think, you know, taking care of your team, you know, being a, a strong leader of your people, paying attention to them uh, mm-hmm. was, you know, very important. Being trusted, honest, you know, to me is always uh, critical. Whether you're a leader or not, it's just critical in business. Right. It, it's interesting. Just a, a sec, another second on this, because it helps prepare you for what you've been doing since then. But I am curious, because the, the the caricature of Wall Street is kind of people with fangs or something like this, right? Hyper competitive, hyper smart people with fangs. But at the same time, what you're describing, and I see this from others, is people who know how to collaborate people who know how to mentor, people who know how to build a culture that people will trust. And so kind of contrast those two things that are in your body somewhere. Yeah. Well, you know, again, Wall Street is a, it's a hyper competitive environment, but I, you know, I think that's the negative part of it. The positive part of it is the talent that you get to work with. I mean, the people that we're able to recruit, the talent that they have, the intelligence that they have, the drive that they have, they were a joy to lead um, because, you know, (laughs) Working hard and, you know, trying to accomplish goals. That's what all of us were trying to do all the time. And so it was a huge plus in that regard. And I I kind of go back to what I said earlier. I thought, yes, it was it a competitive environment. Yes. But it was it was it a fair environment. Yes, it was a meritocracy. And I think we always felt that, you know, it was we were treated reasonably fairly. I mean, yes, were there times where people didn't like what they got, what they got paid, or they were disappointed that somebody else got promoted into this job. Absolutely. Those things go on, you know, in, in any company, but at the end of the day, uh, it was just a, it was a very capable group of people. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the, you know, and, and, and again, I always, Dick Fisher used to say this, Dick Fisher was one of my favorite and most admired leaders at, at Morgan Stanley. You know, we, we do first class business in a first class way. And uh, I love that expression. I always try to follow that. And I think that's what we that's what we tried to do. Cool. So let's move on kind of quickly that you did two other things at Morgan Stanley. So you got out of real estate and you broadened your experience. Talk about those stops before we get to Boston properties. So in 2005, I was put in charge of the Morgan Stanley Investment Management, which is the asset management arm of the Mm -hmm. firm. And I did that from 2005 until 2008. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in 2008, um, we had some leadership shifts in the firm. And I, this was the beginning of 2008. I moved to uh, Hong Kong with my family. And I was the uh, CEO of Morgan Stanley Asia. And I, and I was there from uh, 2008 till 2011. And I was on the management committee of the firm, you know, when I had those two jobs. Mm-hmm. And nice time to be away during the GFC. I don't know how Asia <laughs> yeah. was. Well, that was, I, you know, it was, that was strange. I mean, the, I had no idea that the GFC was going to happen. And I remember 
being in my office in Hong Kong and watching, you know, the Bear Stearns uh, issue in June and what the stock did. And it was unsettling to say the least. Uh, but you're right. I wasn't in the mix in New York with, you know, all of what was going on. You know, one thing that did have an impact on me in Asia, well, a couple of things. One, you know, Asia popped back quicker than the rest of the world. So in, in that sense, it was an exciting place to be. And then the second thing is, is one of the things that Morgan Stanley did to get through the financial crisis is um, Mitsubishi, MUFG, bought a, a, I believe it was a 10% stake in the firm. Mm -hmm. And we became uh, a lot closer to uh, Mitsubishi. And uh, Japan was part of my remit when I was in Asia. So uh, I was involved with them quite a bit, you know, in working on a local securities joint venture and also uh, working, collaborating with Mitsubishi in the rest of Asia Pacific. And that was an, definitely an interesting thing to be involved in. Actually, they were lucky you were so close at that point in yeah. time, but it must have been otherworldly to have been in the center of the universe and then be watching the GFC happen from so far away. Yeah. No, it, it was. I mean, it was unsettling. I mean, the, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I had a neighbor uh, friend who worked at Lehman Brothers, not to segue to something else, but, and he lost his lease on his house because it was with the firm and, you know, the firm went bankrupt. So, I mean, there were, we were a long way away, but definitely the impacts of all this were felt. Yeah. Well, crazy stuff. And I'd like to drill down on it, but we don't have time because I want to get yeah. to very briefly just mention Lehman and then let's get to Boston Properties and how they came about and how... That's changed you. Yeah. So anyway, well, when I left in 2011, I, you know, honestly, I retired and I, I but I was too young to retire. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I studied everything, you know, academia, all, all kinds of things. I probably studied everything except playing golf. So. <laughs> but anyways, but in the middle of this, I had a friend who ran a, one of the hedge funds that it was a creditor to Lehman who called me and said, Owen, look, you, you're, you know, we'd love to have you get involved in this board that we're putting together because Lehman went bankrupt and we're getting ready to have it emerge from bankruptcy. And we're, we need a board to put together to help uh, Lehman, you know, resolve the claims. You know, there were two things that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. One was monetize the assets that they had. But second of all, there was the still arguments over who actually um, had claims, you know, mm -hmm. who gets the money. Mm -hmm. So there are actually two big jobs with this. It was, you know, and they got, I think, a trillion dollars of claims, you know, at the outset. So it was it was significant. So anyway, seven of us were selected and I was the first chairman of the board. And, you know, all of us, I, I thought the creditors committee did a nice job uh, of who they picked, not because they picked me, but um, just the, the everybody had a, a level, an area of expertise. You know, Rob Gifford and I were real estate and I guess I had, you know, a little bit of Asia and asset management. And then we had a derivatives expert and we had a private equity expert and a hedge fund expert and a CFO. And then we had a cool. bankruptcy expert. And mm -hmm. so, and then the second thing is all these, these are great people. And we, you know, we collaborated well, we're still, we, you know, we, we still work on it together and we're all great friends. And so I've loved that aspect of it as well as the personal side of it. And it, you know, it was complicated. We ended, I think we're at, you know, a hundred billion now of, or plus of distributions. Mm -hmm. And I think the claims have been settled. I mean, these numbers are going to be a little bit off, but it's somewhere around 350 billion, you know, of claims. Right. That have and been a lot of that was real involved. estate. 
Real estate was a yeah. Well, real estate was the biggest sleeve. It wasn't all real estate. And then the big thing that we had in the real estate side was the Archstone uh, asset. We owned half of that. And then, uh, you know, when when our board got involved, we bought the half that we didn't own. uh, That which is not a common occurrence for a a formerly bankrupt company to make an investment of that size. And then we turned around and we were we filed to take it public. And then uh, right before we took it public, two strategic buyers, uh, AVB and EQR came in and did a um, cash and stock deal and bought, you know, and then they divided up the assets and they bought it from us. Right. So it was a fascinating uh, deal to be involved in just all the moving pieces. Had to uh, be. And I have a lot of friends at Artstone. You disappointed them by (laughs) yanking it at the last minute in the other direction. Yeah. Well, our job was to, you know, maximize value for creditors. And that's what we thought was the the way, way to do it. Yeah. So talk about coming to Boston Properties and how we've we've talked so much about Boston Properties, so we don't have to dwell on it too much. But I'm curious about what different types of leadership you had to bring to this kind of role than you had before. Yeah. Well, so Boston Properties was founded and led by two very talented entrepreneurs, Ed Lindy and Mort Zuckerman. And Ed tragically died, I believe, in around 2010. And Mort became the, and he had been the CEO and Mort uh, became the chairman and then the CEO. And he was, uh, back when I joined, he was probably around 75 years old. And mm-hmm. he and the board agreed that it was time to find a successor. And so I was contacted and, you know, participated in a process and they ultimately decided to hire me. So that's how it all uh, came out of retirement, came out of the yeah, nine was, retirement. Uh, yeah. And Mort, Mort remained the chairman. You know, he was executive chairman, I think the first year and he was mm-hmm non-exec chair for a couple of years after that. So he, you know, he stayed with us for a while and I worked closely with him for my first several years when I was with the company. <laughs> that must've been a privilege actually, because it I, was, it was one of the reasons I took the job. I mean, I knew Mort from my Morgan Stanley days. I've always thought he was, I always liked him and I just thought he was a really interesting guy, you know, given not only the real estate expertise that he had, but all the other things, you right. know, that he got involved yeah, in. Yeah, the Atlantic. That was part of the part of my um, decision making and coming here with him. Uh-huh. So just to say what you know, what's the same and what's different yeah. you know, about BXP and Morgan Stanley. So what's different? What's different is is the BXP is narrower and deeper. So at Morgan Stanley, you know, we were out doing business all over the world. Uh, we were, you know, in, in real estate, we were very transactional. You know, we would buy and sell billions of dollars every year. We would get involved in all asset types, everything we would do, all these different countries. We'd go in and out. Of, we'd do the opposite of what I described right. earlier. We would go to Focus the was not say, the word. This is an opportunity for two or three years. Let's dive on this and then we'll just put, we'll sell and we'll leave. Mm-hmm. And we could do that because we were a fund. So now you come to Boston Properties, you know, the scale of it's not totally dissimilar from a uh, revenue standpoint and things like that, headcount, but it's very different in terms of breadth and depth. So now we're much narrower, right? We're focused on office. Yes, we have apartments and retail and parking and life science. And yes, where there is some variability there, but it's primarily office. And then we do everything, you know, we do, as I've talked about many times in our discussion, you know, we're fully integrated. We do all these things. And so, it, and we're not as transactional. You know, right. we might do, I mean, this year we've made five, five acquisitions. That's the biggest year we've had in my, you know, eight plus years here. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, very, very different from that standpoint. And we're, you know, actually building buildings. We might, at Morgan Stanley, we might have funded that, but we weren't certainly doing it ourselves. So I think it's a narrower uh, remit, but a deeper remit. Mm-hmm. So those are the differences. But in terms of leadership, I don't think there's much difference at all. I mean, I think the the things that I needed to do to be successful at Morgan Stanley as a leader were really the same here. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, to... And these sound, you know, maybe pretty simplistic, but they are. I mean, you need to surround yourself with great people. And one of the things that was has led to our success at, at Boston Properties is everybody stayed. My partner, Doug Lindy, Mike LaBelle, our CFO, all our regional heads. Uh, we had one retirement in New York, but they all stayed. And that, that so I have a great team. You know, you, tr- you, you empower them. You treat them with respect. Uh, you make sure they get paid, uh, you know, and they get the properly rewarded, you know, for, for their contributions. That was the same, you know, at Morgan Stanley, you know, as a leader, being um, honest, being trusted, mm-hmm. uh, telling people not what they want to hear, but, you know, what they need to hear. Um, it's not always good news, you know, being honest about mistakes, you know, this didn't go so well. Why? You know, how do we avoid making that same mistake again? You know, thing, things like that. You know, as I always say, I got, I, I've been, as I talked about earlier, I've been airdropped into a number of leadership situations. And there's always an assessment up front of how much change needs to occur, you know, to be successful. But as I always say to my team here, you know, when you start in a leadership job, you're appointed. But over time, to be successful, you need to be elected. Your team, your clients, your shareholders, your investors, whoever those constituents are, they need to elect you to that job over time. And, you know, election is not always giving everybody what they want. It's doing the right things. So you're respected. I mean, I think that's a very important mentality to have to be successful as a leader. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bet that the diversity of the experiences that you had and the transactional nature of it, the twitchiness of Wall Street and what you did at Morgan Stanley probably makes you a better leader in a more stable business because you're able to think, not get stuck in the weeds as much as others might. Yeah. Yeah, that, that could be true, Matt. I will say I used to get, as I came up the ranks at Morgan Stanley, the, the constant criticism or, you know, I shouldn't say criticism, development message right. that I would get was you're too in the weeds. <laughs> you know, you need to uh, step back more. And uh, I don't think I have that problem anymore. But um, probably but, not in this room. Uh, I do think it is important as the as the CEO. That's your team is is executing the business. Somebody has got to step back and say, Are we on the right path? What's Forward. our strategy? How's the world changing? I'm not saying the rest of your team shouldn't be doing that too, but you definitely need to do that as the leader. You need to set strategy. And you need to get everybody bought into it, you know, so your board, your management team, your shareholders, and that's a really important part of the job. Yeah. Well, that's your job. That's the job of a leader. So, Owen, before we end the podcast, I want to hear a little bit more from you on climate, which I know has been one of your passions. And I want to talk about it both for the industry and for BXP. And maybe the place to start is the industry, because I think you just funded a big initiative at ULI, the Net Zero Imperative. I believe. So maybe talk about that. And then we'll talk about both the industry and how we move the needle and about BXP. Yeah, great. No, Matt, happy to do that. On climate, look, my views, uh, this is a a philanthropic priority for me and my family, because I 
think climate change is real. I think it's caused by human activity, and I think it's an existential risk uh, for all of us. And I think we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg with storms and temperature, human migration, and this is all just at the tip of the iceberg. It's just starting, and this is all going to get much, much worse. Yep. And it's a very challenging problem for all of us because we tend to measure our progress on things in the shorter term, the next month, next quarter, next year, maybe five yep. years. But we, this problem, you know, it's been brewing for decades and it will probably take decades to solve it. And it's hard to see the near-term payback, mm -hmm. you know, on a lot of these initiatives. And again, I don't think the human condition is set up as well for that, but we just have to acknowledge that it's a problem. And yeah, both the human condition and our political system and our societal system don't know how to address that yeah. in a big way. So uh, a couple, so the things, the way I'm trying to, you know, make an impact personally, a couple things. One, as you mentioned, I did give a significant gift to the ULI to found the net zero imperative. Uh, which is um, uh, part of ULI's already uh, formidable activities uh, on climate change and on sustainability. And the goal of the gift is to fund advisory panels for owners of property, cities, schools, hospital systems, anybody that touches the built environment to give them plans to get their properties to net zero. And then to fund the learnings from all of those advisory panels to uh, create reference materials for the industry broadly to use to, for everyone to get their properties into those conditions. You know, as, as you know, real estate's a very fragmented industry. It's owned by a lot of people, some of which are not as well-funded and some of which are not as sophisticated. And so what this gift is intended to do is to try to democratize, you know, these, uh, principles and these plans so that property owners broadly can help solve the problem. The built environment is creating 40% uh, of the emissions that are harming the planet. And about a third of that 40% is from scope three, which is um, construction and building materials. And about two thirds of it is the existing building operations. Yeah. So so that's really the purpose of that gift. And, you know, fortunately, already several other generous donors have already given gifts to this initiative as well. And we've more than doubled my gift. So we're well funded and um, hope maybe some of the listeners to this podcast will uh, take advantage of the opportunity to um, get one of these panels and help them accomplish this net zero goal. And then the other thing I try to do in my role is um, be a major sponsor for sustainability and particularly net zero operations with Boston Properties. You know, we're a leader in this space. Newsweek, by the way, Newsweek Magazine just came out with a poll a couple days ago and ranked us the number one um, most responsible property company in the country and number 31 overall. Um, so we're very proud of that. And, you know, we, we've announced net zero, a net zero target goal by 2025. We've already reduced our emissions from scope one and two by 70% off a 2008 what, base what's year. Scope one and what's scope two? So well, scope one and two are your building operations. So uh, it is both the on-site uh, combustion, uh, fossil fuel combustion that you're doing on-site in your boilers and things like that, plus the power that's used by the clients in your buildings. So it's think about you know property operations. 
And then scope three is the embodied carbon in the materials that you use when you actually construct buildings or do tenant work. And that's a very um, big part of the problem. It's a third of all the emissions from the built environment. And it's also a very challenging one to solve because there's not a supply chain yet, a uh, deep supply chain for, um, car- for green concrete and green steel. The fabrication uh, of both of them requires a lot of power. And a lot and a lot of it's done with fossil fuels. So I do think, you know, there's a lot of property companies like Boston Properties that are doing the right things in this area. Uh, and I think more and more property companies will. But we can't get to net zero without help from our supply chains. And the two most important supply chains are uh, the power industry. There's still much too large a percentage of power that's brown that comes from, you know, coal and um natural gas combustion. Uh, So that's one. And then the second is what I mentioned a minute ago, which is the material supply chain, particularly um, steel and concrete. And as you look at your business, are you able to, is the net zero every building or is the net zero across the portfolio? And how do you up the grade on the hardest to fix buildings in that way? Yeah, it's across the whole portfolio. You know, we improve by a couple things. One of that 70%, I would say roughly half of it, maybe a little less than half, is by having a more modern portfolio. So, you know, we sell each year older buildings and we're always building new buildings. So that helps. And then our older buildings, we're always upgrading the equipment. And we, when we do so, you know, we're now eliminating fossil fuels and we're also, um, you know, new equipment is more efficient. So we got about you know, 30 to 35% reduction in emissions just through efficiency. Uh, but all the rest of it's got to come from power. So that's what I keep coming back to is, you know, we don't control that. You know, we have to enter into more complicated power purchase agreements to acquire green power. And our power providers need to have more green sources of power. And they just don't right now. And uh, it's, you know, it's changing too slowly, in my opinion. Yeah. And we talk about this all the time on Leading Voices, because one of the things I do believe in, if Leading Voices is geared a lot to young people getting in the industry, I believe that young people getting in the industry today, a large part of their future careers will be decarbonizing our industry. But they're not going to just decarbonize new buildings like you're talking about, but they're going to be decarbonizing obsolete buildings or getting rid of them, which is carbon negative too. So kind of how to do it for the overall industry, which is what you will, I will look at is really, really painful. Yeah. Well, there's um, a couple things to respond to what you said. I agree with you. I think that um, that is a real value in older properties today, because if you repurpose something by definition, your scope three emissions are going to be much lower than building a brand new building. And I think that's going to become a much more significant part of the calculus when thinking about new development. We just uh, had a, a client that was had a pretty major requirement in one of our regions, and they had a rough idea where they wanted to be, but the most important thing to them is that it was a absolute zero fulfillment. So we found an existing building, we electrified all the equipment, we increased the insulation, we put solar all over the rooftops, and we, get, we made the property net, it'll, their fulfillment will be net zero and, it, and the embodied carbon will be 30% of what it would be versus a new build. So, um, and that was the most important criteria for this particular client. And I think we're going to see more of that. I mean, I think Matt, a lot of this too, I, 
when we as a company want to be a leader in sustainability, I think it's the right thing to do, but I also think it's the smart thing to do because we're now serving our clients more effectively and more and more of our clients are interested in this. We have more shareholders that are um, sustainability oriented. I, you know, I've spoken this year, I've attended two or three ESG conferences where I, I met with shareholders that were uh, primarily interested in the ESG characteristics of our company as opposed to other factors. Uh, we issued earlier this year, 850 million in green bonds. Th- that money is used to build uh, properties that are um, lead gold or better. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the rate, we think that we 65% of the investors that came into that deal were green bond investors. And we think the rate might have been five to 10 basis points better than we would have gotten for a non-green issue. You know, Does that's that a lot pay of money. For itself? Pay, you know, that, that is a significant savings. Um, I mentioned clients and then our employees, you know, they, they, as I do, you know, enjoy working on this. They enjoy the impact aspect of it. And I think being a leader in sustainability makes us a more purposeful organization, which is of great benefit with our, to our employees. Yeah. Well, as you talk to other CEOs and have the CEOs who are behind the times on this understand their self-interest in this as well as their heart interest in it, that really goes a long way. Yeah. No, it does. I mean, some of it you can't quantify in terms of payback. Some of it you can, some of it you can't, but we definitely see the uh, clear benefits. You know, include those three constituencies that I've mentioned, and also I would say our communities. You know, our, our, uh, we, our footprint's all in coastal cities, and our cities care um, deeply about this topic. Many of them are putting in regulations, and uh, being um, uh, knowledgeable in this area helps within our community relationships as well. Uh-huh. And one of the challenges in all of this is the feeling of drop in the bucket. So you made a a big contribution to ULI to do this. And I'll laugh in a funny way. It's a huge contribution, but it feels like a drop in the bucket. So to believe that any dollars going towards that type of effort will make a difference is really hard. And so how do do you know that those dollars will leverage towards change? Because change will leverage multiple times. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, no one person or one organization is going to solve the climate change problem. I think the attitude that all of us have to have is we all have to participate in some way. We have to change our behaviors. We have to do something, you know, turn the lights off, change, you know, buy green power, change our behaviors in some way to make our activities more sustainable to, you know, to help this problem. So I think that's the way you have to think about it. It's uh, the ultimate um, uh, challenge for all of us as individuals to solve. For our time. I appreciate that. Okay. The last question, always on leading voices, is advice for a young person getting into the real estate yeah. business? Well, I think, um, you know, the first thing is, I would say is, you know, just make sure that you've got that spark that I talked about in my own life, which is mm-hmm. a love of the built and natural environment. I mean, I, I just have kind of a natural curiosity. When I walk around a city, I'm always looking at buildings and looking at this corner. Why is that store there? What could be better about this location? You know, I just, you know, I'm a runner, so I'll go out and I love going to a new city and going for a run because then you can figure out where everything is and how it all works. You know, I love maps and not just the built environment. I love being outdoors and all those things. So I think there's a, you've got to have kind of a fundamental interest in all that. Um, because I think at the end of the day, you know, to be successful, work can't be work. You know, you've got to enjoy mm-hmm. it. And I think you need to make sure you have that spark. 
Now, assuming you have that, you know, I think it's, um, again, I'm going to give you some very simple things here, but I think it is simple. You know, one, you got to work hard. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Hard work will be rewarded. Work in a place that's a meritocracy where there is leadership that cares about you as a person. You're not just, you know, filling a seat or doing some task that, and, you know, make sure you're working with people that care about you, care about your professional development, bring you into things, all that. Work with integrity, always. Be honest. Even when things don't go well, uh, everyone will respect that. Honesty is the key. You know, at first in your career, it's all about what you know and, you know, you're doing a lot of analytical work and things like that. But as you get more senior, it's really into the interpersonal side. And, you know, being a trusted person is really difficult to accomplish. But once you're there, it's um, really yeah. important. It's interesting. Be trusted. And, and it's in all of the, you said it's a long game yeah. so that if you behave bad along the way, You'll never get to where yeah, you might want I, to go. You just, you just you, can't Particularly do it. in real estate where you've got all these private transactions going on, you need to be thought of as somebody that can absolutely be trusted, that will always do the right thing no matter what the papers say. I think that's really important. Yeah. I also think, Matt, the other thing you could think about, too, as a person coming into the business, and my partner here in New York, John Powers, had, gave me this, so I'll give him credit for it. There really are three bodies of uh, knowledge in real estate. One is the buildings and the system. So mm -hmm. all, you know, how do leases work? How do buildings work? How does entitlement work? Construction, you know, all the terminology and how things work in the real estate world. Then the second is how is it financed? That's really important. Who are the investors? Yeah. Debt, equity, you know, how are buildings bought and sold? Uh, you know, all that, the finance, it's, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's a capital intensive business. And to really be a, a real estate expert, you've got to know finance. And then the third is people. So you got to have a relationship network externally. And you have to, you know, as you get more senior, be a good leader of others, of teams or, or of, a, of a business unit. And, you know, have um, think about leadership and, and have good interpersonal skills and network. I think those three areas, um, again, they, you're not going to get it all overnight. And I'm sure every job position has some trade-offs on which of those things you will learn, but I think you need all three to ultimately be successful. Anyway, I really enjoyed the interview, and I thank, thank you for all the thoughtfulness that you put into this. So appreciate it very much. Thank you. This is Take wonderful. Care. Yep, Take bye -bye. care. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary... Take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.